Let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your help this morning. I'm very conscious of uh, my own weakness and my own sin and our need of you. And so we ask that you might meet with us this morning in your word and that you might speak to us in a way that we don't deserve, but in a way that we really, really need. So help us, we ask, for the sake of your glory. Amen. Well, uh, imagine with me that a letter comes through your door. It's one of those ominous brown envelopes with a, a, a kind of crown in the top left corner. You open it and you discover that you've been caught speeding. And the letter is to tell you the consequence. Or imagine that you uh, walk through the door, you're finally home from school. It's been a terribly long day. But as you get home, you find that your mum and dad are sitting at the kitchen table with a letter in their hand. You've not been doing your homework and you're facing justice. Or maybe you walk downstairs on a Saturday morning and your wife walks towards you with that ominous look on her face and a bank statement in her hand. You've been spending the family money unwisely and today is the day you're going to reckon for it. Perhaps you get to work and you strangely find that your boss is sitting at your desk and someone from HR is with her. There's been a complaint and today is the day they're going to hold you to account for it. Uh, maybe one of those resonates with you in some way, but I want just to talk to you about what is it in each of those situations, what is it that happens next? What happens next? In those moments as you open the letter or as you listen to your parents or as your boss starts to articulate the complaint, what is it that happens next? Well, let me tell you. Your internal lawyer gets to work, coming up with reasons and excuses for what you've done. I, I wasn't going that fast. I wasn't feeling well enough to do my homework. The dog ate it, as someone suggested this morning. The customer was being unreasonable. I do a way better job than anyone else around here. Now, I start there because Romans chapter 1, verse 18, is the spiritual equivalent of one of those letters. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago, but glance back to it now. It should come up on the screen. At chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There you have it, don't you? All sin. Everybody in this room, all that we have done, every little expression of the suppression of the truth about God will be and is being judged by God. And Romans 2 tells us that as we hear that news, our instinctive response, especially as religious people, is to hear that news and think immediately of reasons why that judgment doesn't apply to me. Nothing to do with me. Now, as far as I can tell from studying the chapter, I think there are two big excuses in chapter two. They might come in slightly different forms at different times, but it's the same two themes, I think, woven all the way through the chapter. One is this, I'm one of the good guys, and the other is, I've got away with it so far. So let's just take each of those excuses in turn and work through the passage uh, around those titles. First one is this, I'm one of the good guys. I'm one of the good guys. You don't judge me, I'm one of the good guys. Essentially, that's where the chapter starts, isn't it? Paul appears to be dressing mainly, if not exclusively, the Jews in the church. People who look at the condemnation of the wicked at the end of chapter one and go, well, do you know what? About time. 
About time those wicked people deserve it. And they think like that because they consider themselves to be in a totally different category. So verse 1, they judge others, assuming, verse 11, that God will do what? Show them partiality because of their status. We're the good guys. We're the covenant people of God. We're the people who keep the rules. We don't live wild lives. We don't follow our sordid sexual desires. We are good, upright, moral people. Now, we need to be careful. I don't think that the Jews in Rome thought that they were perfect. It's not that they considered themselves sinless. Very few people are that arrogant. No, they know they're not perfect. They just think they're better. That's all. We are so much better that we belong to a different group. You know, we're not part of that kind of Roman immorality. We are Bible people. We're covenant people. We're Old Testament people who work hard at our morality. Thank you very much. And before we go any further this morning, you have to accept, don't you, that that's a tendency that we all have. A tendency not to take our sin seriously because we think we belong to a group that is better than anybody else. A group for whom judgment isn't really a thing. I'm a member of a church. I'm a church leader. I go to roots and I get the questions right. I know the Ten Commandments. I am theologically thoughtful. I read Christian books. And so we group ourselves above the rest of the world and consider ourselves to be immune from all this talk about judgment. We do it all the time. Perhaps it's possible that you are even doing that right now. Presuming I'm talking about other people and not you. And Paul in chapter 2 wants to pull that defense down by showing us that no one escapes judgment because they're a particular kind of person. Everyone faces it, he says. And he has three arguments against this good guy's defense. Let's just see them together and I'll work through them. The first one is this. Thinking you're a good person is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. Look at the second half of verse 1. In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Again, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, let me show you the way to go, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's a simple, isn't it, but really compelling point. Thinking of yourself as a good guy lacks a basic self-awareness of the things that you actually do. I mean, are you really planning, says Paul, on standing before the judgment seat of Christ and saying, no, I, I don't think I envied. I was never boastful. I was never foolish. Do you really think that you could pull that off before the throne of him who knows all things and sees all things? And don't you think that the hypocrisy of all that is as bad as any of the offences themselves? You know, you condemn stealing. You look down on someone who would break into someone's house and rob their stuff. But actually, you spend your time looking at the stuff in that house and wishing that it was yours. You get really hot under the collar and self-righteous when you hear about a friend who's been unfaithful to his wife. How terrible. How appalling. 
and you have no self-reflection on your lustful thoughts. You know, we're so offended, aren't we, by the idols of our age, the shallow materialism of the 21st century Britain. How shallow it is to put your confidence in material stuff. What a waste of time. And yet we're just a little bit more shaken than we'd like to admit by the cost of living crisis. We've robbed some of that confidence for ourselves. It's hypocrisy. Secondly, though, thinking that you're one of the good guys fails to think about the individuality of judgment, the individuality of judgment. Notice this with me, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Do you notice the individuality there? Each and every one according to what they have done. And notice how he puts it to make sure that we understand that we are all under the judgment of God. It's not simply those who do good things who will be saved in verse 7. It's rather those who have only ever wanted to do good things because they have sought consistently all the time after glory and honor. Those people will be saved. And those that will be condemned aren't just those who've done bad things, but those who might have even been doing good things but have been doing them because they are self-seeking, he says, not obeying the truth. You notice that verse 7 is a category containing one person, Jesus Christ. And the rest of us have missed the mark by a long way. And each of us, rich or poor, loved or hated, famous or unknown, Jew or Gentile, churchgoer or atheist, all of us, he says, will stand, each one of us will stand before God to give an account of ourselves and our own deeds. And the verdict will be the same for all of us. I don't know whether you've ever played that game. Maybe you play it at, at Roots or perhaps Impact sometimes where the person leading asks a question and you have to run to one side of the room if you think it's true and the other side of the room if you think it's false. Have you played that game? You know, everyone go there, it's true. Uh, false. If you've not played it, Ethan, you can imagine it, right? So you imagine, you imagine the game, right? What do you do in that scenario? Well, actually, you don't really try and answer the question, do you? What you try and do is go where everybody else is going, yeah? Because you think there are going to be safety in numbers, And so you don't want to be the only person who thinks the opposite of everybody else. And I think sometimes that's how we imagine God's judgment to be, yeah? So we just go wherever we think the biggest group is. But here in Romans 2, God's judgment is not like that at all. He's calling you up individually. He's calling me up and asking me to give an account of each and every deed. Every individual, regardless of who they are, gives an account before God. And there is a terrible dread to that. And if you've not understood that, you've not understood Romans 2, there is a terrible dread to each one of us standing before God to give an account for everything we've done. Thirdly, thinking you're one of the good guys fails to recognize the justice of God. It's hard, again, isn't it, not to see this in the passage. It's there in verse 2 where we're told that God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice wickedness. Literally, the word there is truth, aletheia. In other words, there is nothing false about God's judgment. There, is, there are no let-offs, no miscarriages, no mistakes, no oversights. God's judgment is right. It's rightly falling. It's, it's true. Verse 11 underlines it, doesn't it? For God shows no partiality for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And God's not 
partial to some people in judgment and not to others. He doesn't let people off because he likes them. Instead, everyone rightly falls under his right judgment. Those who've never seen the law, those who've never heard of the Ten Commandments, will be judged apart from those rules. How so? Well, look at verse 15. Because the law of, the God is not, law of God is not some relative thing. It's not a humanly invented list of rules. Rather, the truth from God is printed into the hearts of everybody who is made. So much so that in judgment, God doesn't need to get a law book out and weigh you against the law book because it's written on your heart. You can just refer to your conscience. Imagine just asking you, in fact, you know, you know forget, forget the law book for a moment. Maybe you didn't see it. Ever let yourself down? Ever done something that you really realize you shouldn't have done? Something for which you felt a twinge of guilt? Condemned, all of us. Because we've all done that, haven't we? And morality then isn't just something that we feel. It's, it's something that is true, isn't it? It's true because it's from God, the Aletheia God, the true God who made us, something that reflects who he is and uh, who he has made us to be. Let me just kind of emphasize this for a moment because I think we can make mistakes here. Let's make sure that we get this right. No one escapes God's judgment because God's judgment is a true judgment rooted in an external criteria that is so basic to humanity that it is written into every fiber of our being, whoever we are, wherever we're from. So much so that at the end of the passage, circumcision or uncircumcision makes very little difference because we all fall into exactly the same category, circumcised or uncircumcised, Jew or Gentile, we're all sinners. Because we're all sinners, because we're all in the wrong group. Not because we've upset somebody, not because we've hurt somebody's feelings, but because the law of God, the true God, rightly condemns each of us as lawbreakers. And standing before God, it will not help you to say, you know what, I was one of the good guys. Don't you understand, God? I was one of the good guys. I was one of, you know, I was one of the church members. I was an elder. I led a connect group. I went to see you at school. I was a good kid. And on that day, God's judgment will not lie. And we will be exposed. What about the second excuse? The second excuse, I think, in the passage is this. I've got away with it so far. I've got away with it so far. All this this talk about judgment. I mean, you can go on about that if you like, Steve. But all this talk about judgment, I don't feel any of it today. So commonplace, isn't it? We use it all the time, presuming that because we've not been struck by lightning in the moment of disobedience, that therefore we're okay and we've got away with it. That seemed to work out fine, didn't it? People told me it was a bad idea, but nothing happened. No one found out. I'm still here. Paul describes it, doesn't he, in verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? There's a twisted logic, isn't there, to this excuse, that the absence of instant justice is not meant to point you to innocence on your part, but to patience on God's part. The fact that you are not instantly judged for the things that you've done wrong is because God is patient, not you are innocent, or I am innocent. And the idea that we can extrapolate from the absence of instant justice to think that we won't face any consequences is a terrible, terrible lie. The word translated presume in verse 4 literally means against knowledge, like down on knowledge, despising knowledge. 
It's the word used in Matthew 6 when Jesus points out that you can't serve two masters because you will be devoted to one and you will despise the other. And here's the point, that this God's not got me yet attitude is to despise the riches of God's kindness and forbearance. It's to take these riches of the glorious character of God and to hate him for them, effectively, by accusing God of unrightness which is literally the very heart of sin, isn't it? It's the not seeing fit to acknowledge God of chapter 1, verse 28. But here it's been done by religious people who think that God's probably not that bothered about how they live their lives. I don't know, but maybe that's how you're thinking this morning. I know we can all fall into this. Maybe you'd call yourself a Christian this morning, but you live your life without any consciousness of your sin at all. You're slightly uncomfortable with this sort of constant talk of it in the beginning of Paul's letter. It feels a bit old-fashioned, perhaps. You know, come on, there's some great stuff in chapter 8 in Romans. Can't we get there in a bit of a hurry, please? All things work together for good. Give me more of that. And so we live our lives with a sort of complacency about our sin. It's an antinomianism, to use the theological term, against the law. As if sin and the law just don't matter anymore. And we we look down our noses, don't we, as Christians, in two directions. We, we look down our nose at the world in all its mess and go, oh, you're, you're filthy, messy people. And we look down our nose in the other directions at Christians in the past or in other cultures, thinking, oh, they're, they're a bit strict, aren't they? Presuming that because we don't feel any ill effects from our very libertarian views of what we are and aren't allowed to do, that we must be okay. Must be. But what does Paul say? Present patience does not mean no future judgment. Present patience does not mean no future judgment. Look down at verse 5. Because of your heart, an impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Or down in verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Again in verse 16, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is sobering stuff, isn't it? It's hard. But this is what Paul says. Don't think that getting away with it today is reason to believe you've got it right. Because the patient forbearance of God has a shelf life. And there is a day when the stored up, patiently held back wrath will be meted out in tribulation and distress. Blow for blow, sin for sin, perfect justice. In a true judgment, with no secrets, no let-offs, no free passes. A day when we discover that God's been following us all along. He's seen it all, storing up wrath against ourselves for the day of God's judgment. So our time will come, won't it? Jew or Greek, church attender or pagan, Christian home or children's home, nursing home or prison cell, young person or old person. And I know it's uncomfortable. And perhaps you're sitting there thinking, you know, come on, Steve, when are you going to get to the good bit? When are you going to get to the forgiveness bit? The bit where, you know, God waves a wand and all my sins are done away with. Now, for sure, there is an answer for sin, and we are going to come to that. It's where Paul started, isn't it, in his letter. But we must pause here 
We must grasp this. We need to see that God's salvation does not come at the compromise of his justice. The forgiveness and salvation that's available in Jesus Christ is not a contradiction of what we're reading here. It's not a contradiction of this day of judgment and wrath. Salvation in Christ is not a way to dodge justice for your sin. It doesn't put you in a special category, or it doesn't mean that God will turn a blind eye to what you've done. No. Rather, salvation is only possible through justice, where our sin has been paid and satisfied. So that stood before the Lord, we don't say, hey, listen, I'm one of the good guys. Remember, I was a church member, I was a church elder, I was a pastor. Don't you remember? don't say that do we instead with like tear-soaked joy before the judge of all men we point to Jesus and say he's already paid for me he's already paid for me justice has already been paid in his blood so that we don't escape justice but rather we experience justice in Christ for our salvation And in the meantime, we're not to skip over chapter 2, are we? Instead, I'm to understand that my experience of the riches of God's kindness and his forbearance is meant not to lead me to complacency for sin, but into a perpetual repentance for sin, which is the shape of the Christian life, driving me to my knees in ongoing repentance and faith in Jesus. Even this sin, Lord Jesus, even this sin, Lord Jesus, I am sorry. Thank you that you have borne the punishment that that deserved. You know, like you, I am no better than anyone else in this room or anyone in the world. I am like you under God's right wrath and judgment, but escape only in Jesus standing in my place. Let me just try and land this in a concrete way for us this morning as we finish. There are doubtless some of us in this room who have thought of ourselves as Christians just because of who we hang out with, and it seems to be working at the moment. Let me talk to you, maybe if you're a young person and you're from a Christian home and you've just never considered for a moment that the wrath and fury of hell described in verse 8 is for people like you, me. Well, if that's you this morning, can I plead with you to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ? You will not escape justice. None of us will. Our only hope is to face justice in Christ today ahead of judgment day to come. That's the choice, justice in future judgment or justice in Christ's cross. So come to him and turn to him. But for the rest of us this morning, all of us this morning, we need to understand, don't we, that wherever we smell a whiff of self-righteousness in the church, we're smelling the stink of the devil's lies because sin matters. Not everybody else's sin out there matters, But our sin in here matters too. Not first because sin is about hurt feelings or broken people, but because sin flies in the face of a true God and the law that he has given to us all. And so if I'm super clear on how everyone else needs to change, but I think that I myself am doing okay, thank you very much. Or if I point the finger at the world without turning it to myself, I'm missing the point. There is only one source of hope on Judgment Day. And it's not that I was better than anyone else. It's not that I was a church member or a church pastor. It's not that I had a track record of getting away with it. My only hope on Judgment Day is Christ. And as people who've experienced that, we should be full of sympathy and compassion for a world living in the hell of sin 
and its lies and facing God's judgment to come. And we should spend our time, shouldn't we, pointing to the place where wrath and mercy meet in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us as we close. Let's take a moment just to think and ponder. And then I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we don't want to pretend before you this morning that we are any better than we really are, or that in ourselves we deserve anything other than your right judgment for our sin. And so we come before you and confess that in many different ways and at different times we've used all sorts of excuses to rub this judgment out of our minds. And yet, Lord, we're conscious that you teach this here, not just to an unbelieving world, but to a church that professes your name, that we might remember that you are the just judge of all sin, including ours. And so how we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that on the cross, as Jesus died, he bore the wrath and judgment that our sin deserved, Not that we might escape justice, but that through Christ we might face justice and come out the other side in resurrection hope of new lives to be lived today for your glory and for all eternity. Please, we pray, help us to be a church that takes sin seriously. Not everybody else's sin seriously, but our sin seriously. Trusting Christ alone to forgive us in whose name we joyfully pray. Amen.